Welcome to the Sex and Psychology Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Justin Miller. I am a social psychologist and research fellow at the Kinsey Institute and author of the book, Tell Me What You Want, The Science of Sexual Desire and How It Can Help You Improve Your Sex Life. Men who have sex with men often identify themselves in terms of sexual positions. Most commonly, you'll hear terms like top, bottom, or versatile to describe the role they prefer to take during penetrative sex. But what if none of those terms describe you? What if you're just not into penetrative sex? That's what we're going to be talking about today. We're going to address the growing trend of gay and bisexual men identifying as sides, or people who aren't into anal sex. We're going to talk about what it's like to navigate sex and relationships in a world that often centers sex specifically around the idea of penetration. This can lead some folks to feel like they don't fit in, or to feel ashamed, or sometimes even pressured into doing things they don't want to do sexually. We're going to discuss how many gay and bisexual men identify as sides, their reasons for it, what their sex lives look like, how we can all learn to be more respectful of people who have different sexual activity preferences than we do, and also whether we should be so obsessed with labeling our sexuality in terms of specific sexual positions. I am joined by Dr. Joe Court, the clinical director and founder of the Center for Relationship and Sexual Health in Royal Oak, Michigan. He is a board-certified clinical sexologist, author of four books, lecturer, and facilitator of therapeutic workshops. He has been in practice for 37 years and has helped hundreds of individuals and couples improve their sex lives and relationships. This is going to be a fascinating and informative conversation. So stick around, and we're going to jump in right after the break. Applications are now open for a new continuing medical education course from the Kinsey Institute at Indiana University. The course is titled Gender, Sexuality, and Medicine, an Introduction to LGBTQ Plus Competent Care, and it will be held this fall. Both online and in-person attendance options are available. This course is intended for health professionals, and it offers continuing education credits. Please visit kinseyinstitute.org for more information and to register. Hi, Joe, and welcome to the Sex and Psychology Podcast. Thanks for having me, Justin. I'm looking forward to it. Thanks so much for joining me. It's always a pleasure to speak with you. I'd like to begin our conversation by asking you to tell us a little bit about how you became a sex therapist in the first place. What is it that drew you to this area? Yeah, well, I was originally a regular therapist, trained therapist, and then I became a sex addiction therapist, wanting to help people with out-of-control behaviors. And I believed at the time that not only sex addiction exists, but that uh, I was one. I had been pathologizing some kinks and fetishes of my own. And so what I found, though, over the years is in sex addiction training, there is no sex therapy training. So over time, I saw people healing, but they didn't have a sexual self, and it didn't rise up the way we were taught in school, you know, where you heal the trauma, sex comes naturally, and that didn't happen. And so I then started looking around and found ASECT, you know, the American Association of Sex Educators, Counselors, and Therapists that you're also in with, too. The, the more training I got, and this, this was probably 2007, 8, 9, and by 2010-ish, I got my doctorate in clinical sexology, became ASEC certified, and I feel really good that I know how to help somebody find their authentic sexual self. 
Well, thank you for sharing that. And as a therapist going on almost four decades in this area, I'm curious as to whether you've seen any major shifts in the types of problems and issues that your patients are showing up with. So are people today still struggling with the same sexual problems that they were in the past, or do we have different concerns about our sex lives today? That's a great question. I think we're seeing more I would say more concerns, but not because of problems, but because there's more opportunity to grab your fetish, your kink, your maybe something that you wouldn't have been able to find without the internet. And so the internet has now offered you opportunities and unfortunately opportunities to meet up with other people that you wouldn't normally do and sort of break agreements with relationships that cause you discomfort or discovery from a partner. I just think there's more of it than I used to see and the frustrations are It's just more, more so. The volume has increased. Yeah, and I can imagine there's all kinds of reasons for that. One is that we live in an era where there's so much more sexuality-related information available to us than there was in the past, especially when it comes to something like online porn. And we know that a lot of people make unrealistic comparisons of themselves or the sex that they're having to what they see in the world of pornography. And I think sometimes that can lead people to identify sexual problems because they're making those unrealistic comparisons. So thanks for sharing a bit about yourself and your experiences in the field. Let's get to the main issue of the day, which is the sexual behavior of men who have sex with men. And there seems to be this popular idea that gay sex, if you will, necessarily means anal sex. But when you look at research on the sexual behaviors of gay and bisexual men, it tells a different story. So there's this paper that was published in the Journal of Sexual Medicine a few years back that asked 25,000 gay and bisexual men what they did during their most recent sexual encounter. And I've seen you write about this particular study in a few of the articles you've published recently. So can you tell us a little bit about what the results of that study tell us about the sexual behavior of gay and bisexual men? Sure. It's it found that most of the last experiences a lot of these gay and bisexual men had were not inclusive of anal sex. It doesn't mean that they never have anal sex, but it, it sort of referenced that not that's not always happening. And I've actually known that forever, that a lot of gay men would say to me, uh, I save it for a relationship, or I save it for a special in- person, or maybe it has to be a certain chemistry. So that's not always there. And there's a higher incidence in our community anyways of erectile disorder. And so because of that and because it takes a stronger erection to get inside an anus and it does a, a vagina. So I just think there's a lot of reasons why a lot of gay men forego that and in, are inclusive of everything else. And in that particular study, it found a few important things. One, which you pointed out, was that a majority of gay men, I think it was about two-thirds, said that anal sex was not part of their last sexual encounter. And when you look at the sexual behaviors that they did report, the single most common behavior, I believe, was kissing on the mouth, followed by oral sex and mutual masturbation, which suggests that these types of activities tend to be more common components of sexual activity that takes place between men who are having sex with other men. So I think that dispels this common stereotype that when men have sex, that it's necessarily all about anal penetration. That certainly doesn't seem to be the case. So 
I think it's important to look at studies like that and also to look at studies like what happens when women have sex with women, you know, because if you look at the research there, it doesn't really match up with the stereotypes either. So, for example, there's this popular idea that when lesbians have sex, all they do is scissor, right? And scissor is the colloquial term for what in the scientific world we call tribidism, which refers to genital, genital touching. And in the case of women having sex with women, you're talking about vulva to vulva touching, the legs intersecting. And if you look at what lesbians actually report doing during their most recent sexual event, it's not scissoring for the most part. Again, it goes back to a lot of kissing, oral sex, mutual masturbation, genital touch. So I I just think when we're talking about sexual minorities, there tend to be these stereotypes about what their sex lives look like. And then if you look at what they're actually doing, tends to be pretty different from that. Now, in the gay community, there's a lot of pressure to identify as a specific sexual position. And most commonly, you'll hear terms like top and bottom that refer to whether you're taking the penetrative or receptive role during anal sex. And then there's a versatile, which refers to being into both roles. And then some people might further identify as a verse top or verse bottom, signifying that they take on both roles, but they prefer one to the other. So let me ask you, Joe, where do you think all of this pressure comes from to identify yourself as a specific sexual position in this community? Well, let me tell you that being 59, I remember being in my late teens, early 20s, it was not so focused on anal sex. It's not that it wasn't focused. I remember being asked, are you a top or a bottom? I remember the discussion, but not like it is now. I just feel like, I don't know if it's social media, I don't know if it's the younger guys, but it's just become so heteronormative for a culture that doesn't want to be heteronormative when it comes to sex. And even, you know, when you think about straight people, many heterosexuals, mixed gender couples feel like it's not sex unless it is intercourse. And somehow we adopted that and it's just become this big, I don't know, stereotype or pressure. And um, a lot of guys feel really left out and really disappointed because of it. And if you look at research where gay and bisexual men are asked how they define sex, you'll see that a majority of them will say that anal sex is the only thing that counts as sex. And there isn't majority agreement on any other behavior. Now, it's interesting if you look at the same research on lesbian and bisexual women, what you'll see is that they count, I think, at least 10 different activities as being sex. And so they don't necessarily have to center around penetration. So lesbians and bisexual women seem to be taking this different, more expansive view of sex compared to gay and bi men. And I think you're right that because there is this sort of definitional focus of this is what sex is, it creates this pressure to identify with these certain labels. But I also wonder to what extent that online dating might be playing a role in this because you're exposed to this much larger pool of people and how do you whittle it down? And I think part of that process is just sort of maybe identifying yourself in some of these ways to maybe sort of filter out matches and and so forth. So I wonder to what extent that might be contributing as well. But I want to know, what are the implications of all of this pressure for gay and bisexual men who aren't into anal stimulation? How do they navigate dating and hooking up in this community where a lot of people don't view anything other than anal sex as being, quote unquote, real sex? Yeah, well, let me tell you, for me, it was the 80s. I was in my 20s, and I'm a side. I mean, that word didn't exist. I didn't call it that back then, but I knew that I didn't like anal sex. And most of the guys I dated said, well, you know, let's do this. You know, they wanted to – and I was just – 
I'm telling you this because I remember thinking, I'm just not going to do it. And I'm going to let guys know that sooner than later. And some guys would say, well, maybe, you know, you haven't met the right guy or maybe when you do it with me or maybe whatever they said. And I was like, it's not happening. So I, I like you. I'd love to date you. But if that's going to be important to you, you need to move on. And they did. And it moved on. And I dated lots of guys until I finally met my husband who understood and was willing to also. But the reason I tell you that is because today I have a Facebook group now of 5,000 guys all over the world. And um, it's called it's called Side Guys. And they all, no, I shouldn't say all, most of them feel very lonely. They feel very shunned. They feel like years are going by. And years went by with me as well. I don't know, maybe because I was in my 20s, maybe because I wasn't so focused on it. I don't know why I, I didn't don't remember feeling lonely or feeling left out. I just remember feeling frustrated that I was meeting all these guys that, that was so important to them. But today, a lot of guys feel like they just feel like they're left behind. Yeah, so a lot of feeling like you don't fit in with the community. I think there's also a lot of potential shame, maybe even some embarrassment in saying, you know, I'm not into that. And then there's also, I think in some cases, pressure to kind of, do things that you don't want to do sexually in order to fit in. And if you're talking about people who are feeling lonely and are having a hard time finding a match, that might make it more likely that they agree to do something that they don't want to really do just in order to meet their other intimate and emotional needs. So I can imagine how psychologically it could be you know, quite distressing in a lot of ways when you sort of feel like an outsider within your own community. And I guess I wonder, you have this Facebook group where you have all of these guys who are talking about this. Do you also have men who show up in therapy who are talking about this issue as well? Oh, yeah. Yes. And lots of depression, lots of feeling, like you say, marginalized in an already marginalized community. And, you know, like you say, not having a match and really wanted to find a partner. But yeah, so many of them are in that Facebook group, though. And they feel like I finally have a sense of belonging. I finally feel like I'm home. A lot of people say that in there. And it makes me almost cry every time they come in because I feel like, wow, how awful that must have felt. And I mean, I had it too. I would feel left out of dis gay discussions. Oh, I fucked this guy. I'm carrying two loads. I'm, you know, I have five loads. I'm like, what do you mean? Loads of loads of laundry? I don't know what you're talking about here. And I wasn't carrying any loads. I didn't even know what that meant, you know? <laughs> and it sounds awful to me because it's, it's not a turn on, you know? And then I started eventually starting to admit to my friends, not just my partners, that I'm not into it. And, and they would look at me like, what's wrong with you? So you coined the term side to refer to men who have sex with men who aren't into anal sex. And to be clear, this term could be applied to pretty much anyone. You know, you can be cisgender, transgender, non-binary, you know, and you can combine the term side with any number of other identities. But the key sort of defining characteristic of it there is that you're just not into anal sex. So what was the inspiration for this term? How did you come up with the term side? So I was doing workshops on it and coming out more and more, even as an educator, a more sex positive therapist. And I was joking one day, I was talking to some people and I said, you know, there's tops and there's bottoms. Why can't there be sides? You know, like a box, you know, it was just a joke. Everybody started laughing and I thought, wait a minute, why can't that be it? Why is that funny? You know? And then I started thinking about it and talking about it and calling it side. 
And then I wrote that article on in 2013 on Huffington Post, Guys on the Side, Going Beyond Tops and Bottoms or whatever it was called. And that got me hundreds and hundreds of emails from people over the years just saying thank you so much. And, it, and then it, somebody else referenced it and it just became, it was slow, but it just became this thing. And really that side was just an innocent way of trying to find a word to express what, what my sexual position is. Can you tell us a little bit more about what the response and reaction has been to the growing recognition and popularity of the term side? So you said you received lots of letters from people. Have you encountered any negative responses to it? Is it pretty uniformly positive? And do you think it's catching on these days? Oh my God. Well, first, let me just say, yes, there's negativity because people will say the negatives are, oh, you're still a virgin as if you have to have intercourse and not be a virgin. Are you asexual? There's nothing wrong with being asexual, but asexual implies that the person's having less or no sex. Again, a, being aside, we're having lots of sex. It's just not intercourse. You haven't found the right guy. Someone hasn't done it right, like that kind of thing. The worst thing that I've been reading, and I, I should have expected it because it's out there anyways, is, oh, really? We need another term? How ridiculous. You know what I always say, and Justin, you, maybe you feel the same way. In the medical world, you wouldn't say, well, it doesn't matter what we're calling your disease. We're just going to throw a bunch of treatments at it and see what works. It would be stupid. We would want to know. You want to know what the doctor says, that you have a certain condition. Not that being a side or a top or anything is a condition, but you want to have some word for it so I can describe. And probably the best thing that happened, I, it was completely unexpected, and it makes me really emotional. I could start crying, really, because I, I started seeing the word being used, and I thought, okay, you know, Cucumber used it, the series Cucumber. I saw it in the Urban Dictionary. I saw some other articles, and my name wasn't referenced. And I thought, I'm going to have to put my ego aside here because, you know, I did create the word, but it may not be... In, in the gay male culture, there's not a lot of crediting. There's not a lot, I don't think. And so then when Grinder came out with it and said, Dr. Joe Gord, he, and then it was all, the blog was mostly about my work. It just felt so good. It just felt really as a side, as a gay man, as a person, as a professional. And then my colleagues, you, other people contacting me, you know, just like giving me props. It, it's been, and I think Grinder. The, sorry, I'm going on and on. But Grinder, I think, really gave it a face because it's the biggest dating app out there, right, in the gay male community. It's just great. And it is really impressive that your work ultimately led to this huge app. I don't know exactly how many users Grinder has, but it's a ton and it's all around the world. But the fact that they updated their sexual position profile to include that is huge you know i can't oh my God. say that many other people are going to have that experience uh, it, that level of pardon the pun like penetration if you will into the world of apps and online dating Right. And I think Michael Henry, who I love, I don't know if you know him, he's a comic and he's a sex educator. And he did a video on it right before Grindr did this. And his video blew up called All About Sides. He, it was very funny, just like the rest of his stuff. And now, you know, Grindr's all over the world. So it has different languages. I think in Spanish, they're calling it neutro. I mean, everybody's got a different way of saying it, but they're using the word to refer to side. So... It sounds like largely the response is positive, but there has been some negativity, some resistance to it. And I think, you know, it's important to acknowledge anytime that we try to adapt or change the language with anything around sex, there's always going to be some mixed response and some resistance. We see this all the time, no matter what the terminology is. But eventually, I think 
you'll see more and more people coming around to this as they become more familiar with the term. I think for a lot of people, it's just, I've never heard this before. I don't really know what it means. I don't understand it. And as people start to have more recognition, more understanding of it, I think we'll see more of the attitudes change there. So when it comes to anal sex, there are a lot of people across genders and sexual orientations who thoroughly enjoy it. And if you're talking specifically about men who have sex with men, there are all kinds of reasons for that. So for example, among bottoms, many enjoy receiving anal sex because it provides prostate stimulation, which some people find can give them an orgasm in and of itself. And for others, they'll say that anal stimulation enhances the intensity of the orgasm that they have, often when it's combined with penile stimulation. But as we've been discussing, not everyone is into anal sex, and that's totally valid. So what are some of the reasons why someone might not be into it? Yeah. Oh, that's a great question. Some people, well, for me, I'll just tell you, I just, it was never part of my interest. Like somebody might say, well, you were part of the AIDS crisis. Uh, I made it through the crisis. I'm negative, HIV negative, but that's not why I didn't do it. Some people, it is why that was so traumatic that just anal sex became a turn off. I was never turned on at 11, 12, 13, 14 years old. It was never on my mind. And that was way before HIV became a thing. Some people have been sexually abused. And so because of that, it's too much of a reminder or an imitation. Some people, and I always forget how you say the word, I know you're going to know it, painful intercourse, anal intercourse, what is it called? I believe it's anodyspareunia, it's something along those lines, yeah. It is exactly that. And so some men feel that. And so because of that pain, some men, because of erectile disorder, as they get older, sometimes in a relationship, they have anal sex for many, many years, and then they, they stop, but they continue having all kinds of other sex. And some people just, they have uh, other, you know, hemorrhoids or whatever it is, and they just find it less and less uh, attractive and of interest. So when we're talking about this community of people who are sides, it's very diverse. And I think you can look at this through a biopsychosocial lens in terms of how people might arrive at this particular sexual identity. So on the biological side, yes, there is the fact that anal sex is just inherently painful for some people for a variety of reasons. There was one study I saw a few years ago that looked at this, and I believe they found that about 10% of people just anal sex is always chronically painful for them, no matter how much preparation they do in terms of dilating or using lube or going slow. It just always hurts, which suggests that for some people, that area just might be especially sensitive. And so it just doesn't really work for them in terms of being a pathway to pleasure, or there can be other anal health issues. So, you know, you've got things like this on the biological side. And then on the psychosocial side, there's all the factors that you mentioned, you know, having previous experiences with sexual trauma or just having previous sexual experiences that were not pleasurable or didn't feel good could lead people to not want to engage in that. Or maybe they just never had any interest to begin with, as you mentioned. And so there's all kinds of factors that could be at play here. So it's not just one simple singular reason you can point to that characterizes everyone. I think you just have to recognize that this is a diverse group. And there are, again, as with anything sexually, multiple pathways by which people can get to or arrive at a specific sexual identity or specific sexual activity preference. I also have to get used to this to this diversity. So I'm an orthodox, what I might even call or gold star side. I've never done it. I've never felt pressured into it. But as the group has grown on Facebook, there are guys that'll say, uh, I'm not always a side. I'm side verse. I'm like, oh, 
I never thought about that. Or I'm more of a top side or I'm a bottom side or there's there's ways of oral, oral bottom side, oral top side. So it started to morph and I, it, I kind of was uncomfortable at first and the group became uncomfortable. But after a while, I said to the group, why are we uncomfortable? Why can't people just describe being... Now, so there are some people that say I'm a side until relationship. I wouldn't consider that a side, but why not? Why? I mean... I, if I think about it long enough, why can't that be a thing? So I, I'm open to all this diversity, but not every gay guy is. And some people leave our group because of it. They think it should only be. And and we don't allow people in the group to talk about topping and bottoming at length because there's a million places to talk about all that. But I'm not going to stop the guy saying, hey, I do like to top every once in a while. And it's fun for me. OK. And I'm still aside, you know. Yeah. And I think when people start getting into purity tests for a particular sexual identity label that just never leads anywhere good, right? And it's a lot of people just kind of have this tendency to want to define things very strictly, I think in part because it makes their understanding of the world a lot simpler. But when it comes to sexual identity labels, you know, these can be fluid things in terms of what they mean. And different people are going to have different definitions of it. So if you want to try to come up with one definition that applies to everyone, and if you don't meet that particular standard for that individual, like, I don't know, again, it just doesn't go anywhere good when that is the approach. So for someone who identifies as a side of some type, how might they define sex? What kinds of activities might they engage in? Hugging, kissing, frottage, rubbing up against each other. That's a big thing in the group. People, a lot of the guys talk about liking to rub genitals together. They love it. Mutual masturbation, just masturbating yourself, watching porn together, you know, then all the fetish and kinks that can go along with that. And many fetish and kink behavior doesn't involve intercourse and doesn't even sometimes involve, you know, orgasm. So being aside in the fetish and kink community can be really, really fun. I mean, there's really so many, uh, I guess everything I would say, nothing's off limits, even rimming. People say, well, and some people like, some sides like butt play, right? So that doesn't mean they like intercourse, And uh, but having something go up there to stimulate, like you said, the prostate or a tongue or whatever. I mean, gay men love rimming. One time I was on a gay cruise and I, I did a workshop and I said, okay, on the boat, you know, if you're really comfortable with what I'm about to say, stand here. And if you're not, un if you're not comfortable, stand over there. And I said, rimming. And everybody went to one side of being comfortable. The whole boat was like about to tilled over because so many gay men love it, you know, but you can still be a side, even though you like butt play. So the sex lives of sides can be incredibly diverse and can include a lot of different sexual activities. But again, it's not necessarily going to look the same from one side to the next because everybody's preferences, everybody's body is different in terms of what feels good. And I think there's sort of this common misconception that everybody's body is laid out in the same way. And even with something like the penis, that every specific sexual technique is going to provide the same amount of pleasure to every penis owner, regardless of who they are. And that's not the case. You know, we all have different nerve concentrations and areas that tend to be more sensitive. And so it's all about figuring out what works for you and your body. And if you always approach sex thinking that everybody of a particular sex or gender is interchangeable as a partner, you're probably not going to have a lot of great sexual experiences, right? You have to learn and adapt and communicate about what feels pleasurable to you and what feels pleasurable to your partner or partners. 
Now, do we have any sense of how many gay and bisexual men identify as sides, or do you have a guess or prediction for how many would do so if they were familiar with this term? I mean, I suspect that the number of people who currently identify as sides is going to be on the lower end simply because it's just an unfamiliar term to a lot of people and don't realize it's an option. But what proportion of the community do you think it is technically a side, whether or not they consider themselves or identify themselves as a side currently? Such a great question. I don't know. I'm actually looking forward to what happens with Grinder and how many people identify as sides. I will tell you that I changed my position as to side on Grinder, and I I looked at my profile search for sides, and I it's not a lot. There's not a lot of guys, but there's a, there's a lot. I mean, the more than I would have thought, and it's very emotional for me to watch it, and very emotional for me to hear the guys say what it was like for them. So when Grinder first did this, all the guys in Facebook were like, "Oh my God!" and they were showing pictures of putting their Grinder to side. So I guess right now it's an excitement stage and we're all sort of figuring it out. But I think you're right. I think it's not going to be a high amount, but it's going to be a bigger amount than I think people think. I'm wondering in talking about all of this, to what extent consensual non-monogamy might be a really good option for somebody who is a side and a person that they're interested in being with is not a side. Maybe they're a top or a bottom or versatile or something. And so if they have sexual activity preferences that don't line up with their partner, it doesn't mean they can't be together, just that maybe they need to have some type of sexually open relationship where they can meet their sexual needs with different partners. And I actually saw a recent paper that came out looking at the intersection between kink and consensual non-monogamy, finding that you often have discrepant kink desires in relationships. And so consensual non monogamy can be one avenue for people to work through that. So maybe if one partner is a switch and wants to be dominant sometimes and submissive other times, but their partner is just a total dom, then maybe having some type of open relationship where they can explore their own dominant side with other partners could be a way or avenue for dealing with that. So I'm just curious if in your clinical practice, you see that consensual non-monogamy does work, can work for people who have discrepant sexual desires. I do see that. And I do see it in the gay male community, right? I mean, not every gay male couple is going to be this way. I do notice, like I'm from Michigan, Detroit, Michigan, in the Midwest here, monogamy is a priority and it's very conservative here. You go to East and West Coast and people are more open. But, but the openness works because... The gay men understand that we are we have a secure bond with each other, but we want to play in different ways. So absolutely, I feel like consensual non-monogamy can be helpful to somebody who, who wants penetrative sex, but is with somebody that doesn't. And the relationship can endure just allowing it to happen outside the relationship. Yeah, and that's what I see in my own research. And in talking to a lot of other therapists about this particular topic, I think it's important to address the fact that there are so many myths and misconceptions around consensual non-monogamy. And a lot of people think that it's the sign of a failing relationship and no relationship can ever work if it opens up because people are going to become inherently jealous or it's going to lead to conflict. And the truth of the matter is if you look at the data, when you compare people in monogamous and consensually non-monogamous relationships, you don't really see a difference in sexual satisfaction. Well, you see a difference in sexual satisfaction. <laughs> the consensual non-monogamous tend to be more sexually satisfied. But in terms of overall relationship satisfaction, you don't really see a difference there. And that suggests that this doesn't inherently harm or hurt relationships if people decide to open it up. 
That's not to say that consensual non-monogamy works for everyone. Sometimes it doesn't work. I think you really need to know yourself in terms of whether that's the right approach to relationships for you. But it can work and can be a viable option for people who might have these differences in terms of what it is that they enjoy sexually. Now, I realize that there is a lot of shaming that happens for people who identify as sides, given that there's this very pervasive idea that sex isn't really sex without penetration. But I've also seen some shaming that kind of goes in the opposite direction on social media and elsewhere, where people whose preferred activity is anal sex are basically told that their view of sex is too narrow, and they're buying into this really heteronormative idea about what sex is. And so there's sort of this tension where you have a lot of people who seem to be pushing their idea of sex onto other people and saying that there's one correct way to define it. So as a sex therapist, I'm curious for your take on this. How can we encourage folks to be more respectful of other people's sexual activity preferences without making them feel bad for wanting something different than you. Right. So the term for us in our field, right, we teach couples and families is differentiation. Differentiation is what makes you different doesn't make you bad or wrong. And what makes me different doesn't make me bad or wrong. And it's okay to have a cringe response at first. It's okay. I have this comic somewhere. I just love it. The guy's looking at something. He's looking at porn. He's on the internet. He's like, oh my God, that's so sick and gross. And then the next frame is he's staring at it. And then the next frame is, oh my God, I think I'm into it. You know what I mean? So like, you don't know if you have a cringe response at first, that it might be something that either you discover is maybe within you, or just that you can have more of an erratic compassion for other people and, and just let the differences exist, which is really hard amongst gay men in the LGBT community. I just, we, we, we're always about the differences and yet we don't really respect each other's differences. But it does mean that I really urge people to sit with it before you state your judgment, before you get out there with your cringe habit and explore what, why do I feel cringy about this? Why do I have to have some, why do I have to make this judgment toward this person about it? I love that term, erotic compassion. You know, I think we would all do well in our relationships friendships, daily life, just to have more compassion for people who think about approach sex differently than we ourselves do. And you're so right that the LGBTQ community, while it loves to celebrate diversity, at the same time, it's not all that tolerant of certain kinds of diversity, right? It's this interesting paradox. And in some ways, you kind of got to practice what you preach. You know, if you want other people to respect you in ways that you might be different, you have to apply that same level of respect to other people. So I think we'd all do well to have a bit more of that erotic compassion. And I think part of this too is in the world of navigating sex and dating, whether it's online or offline, when somebody expresses a sexual activity preference that's different from you and it's somebody you're interested in, people often take that personally and get upset about it. And I think a helpful way to approach that is just to say, you know what? We're just not a match. And that's okay. You know, it doesn't mean that there's something wrong with you. It doesn't mean there's something wrong with me. We just want different things. Now, it's possible there might be some areas of overlap where you could still have fun together and everyone could get pleasure and enjoyment from it. But if you both really want fundamentally different things, you're just not a match. And that's okay. You can either just be friends or you can move on. So I, I think we just need to really approach this very differently. And I really love that erotic compassion idea. 
Now, we're running short on time, but I have one more question for you, which is whether you think we should be so obsessed with labeling our sexuality in terms of specific sexual positions. And I mean, on the one hand, you could argue that this is good to the extent that it increases self-understanding and maybe it makes it easier or more efficient to navigate the world of sex and dating. And, you know, based on some of the things you said earlier, the responses people had to you developing this term, it does seem to have been helpful for a lot of people. But by the same token, I think you could also argue that when we get so hung up on labeling our sexuality in a certain way, maybe that can potentially be limiting in the sense that it encourages you to play within a relatively narrow area. And we know that people can experience fluidity in their sexuality in terms of what they want and enjoy and what feels good. So for example, someone might be more of a bottom now, but later they become more of a top and then later they become more of a side. And what I worry about a little bit is people choosing a specific position label and then starting a relationship with someone else who also has this clearly defined position label. And then one or both partners starts to feel confined by that previously adopted label if they change as a sexual person. So what are your thoughts on this? How should we approach this idea of labeling ourselves as positions? That is such a great question. I really love every word you just said. I think just re- if we could remove the obsession with it and trying to be orthodox about things, because here's what also can happen. This happened to me. I've never been with a woman. I've never touched a woman, you know, whatever, the whole thing. But when I turned 50, I started to find women hot. And I had met this woman with a zipper dress in the front of her dress. And I remember thinking, oh my God, I could unzip her right now and like have penetrative sex with her, which I don't even think about. And it really really upset me. I know this is going to sound stupid, but I, I was uh, sexually abused by a female perpetrator as a child. And therapists back in the 60s and 70s thought that was what made me gay. Of course, it didn't make me gay. But that little voice is still in my head. So I went running back to my trauma therapist saying, I think I'm a latent heterosexual. I think I'm going to have to leave Mike. I think all my books are going to be fraud. I'm going to come out straight. And no one's going to believe me. It's going to be a nightmare. And then when I was done, she told me to breathe. And she's like, you know, you're just a gay guy with probably fluidity. You're the one who writes about all this stuff. So I say that because I had locked myself into this gay identity, which I am gay, but is it? do we have to white knuckle that or can we just be relaxed about it? I love that you just said that. And, you know, I have a lot of gay friends who are in long-term relationships and a lot of them have their relationships sort of centered around certain sexual positions. But in some cases, I've seen friends who have changed in terms of their activity preferences. And in some cases, the partners break up. The relationship just doesn't work out because now they want different things or one of them wants something different than they did before. But I've also seen others who have opened up as a way of kind of dealing with that particular issue. And I think, you know, where we just might benefit a bit would be to recognize that sexuality can be fluid and flexible in so many ways. And what you want, what turns you on, what you enjoy, what feels pleasurable right now might be very different in five years, 10 years, 20 years, 40 years. And so over the course of time, you might want to need different things and different styles of relationships, different sexual activities might be right for you. So I I would just encourage people to not get too hung up on I'm committing to this particular sexual activity identity right now, and that's what I'm going to have to do for life, right? You just don't want to feel confined. Have that freedom to explore your sexuality and to go in whatever direction it naturally goes as you progress through life. 
So thank you so much for this amazing conversation, Joe. It was a pleasure to have you here. Can you please tell my listeners where they can go to learn more about you and your work? And of course, they should follow you on TikTok because you are very popular on there. I am. Thank you. I love it. I have like 580,000, uh, almost 600,000 followers. So all of my LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter, TikTok is at Dr. Joe Court, D-R-J-O-E-K-O-R-T. And then if they want to follow my website, it's joecourt.com. Well, thank you for sharing that. And I definitely encourage folks to check you out on the social media. Joe is very, very active on there as a sex educator. And I'm sure with that huge audience that you have on TikTok in particular, it's a great opportunity and avenue for sex education and increasing awareness of science. So thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate having you here. And thank you to my listeners. To keep up with new episodes of this podcast, visit my website, Sex and Psychology at sexandpsychology.com or subscribe on your favorite platform where I hope you'll take a moment to rate and review the show. You can also follow me on social media for daily sex research updates. I'm on Twitter at Justin Laymiller and Instagram at Justin J. Laymiller. And I'm slowly working on the TikTok thing. It'll take me a while to catch up with Joe though. Also, be sure to check out my book, Tell Me What You Want. Thanks again for listening. Until next time.